This episode of Gen C is sponsored by Chainalysis. Gen C is the generation of the new internet. In Gen C, the C stands for crypto, but it also stands for creators, the connected consumer and collectibles, both digital and physical with on-chain provenance. It stands for culture and characters, the ones we play in games and the companion ones that AI is building alongside us. It stands for community and digital citizenship and the new set of transparent and trustless tools being built to govern them. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they look at the hybrid, digital, and physical spaces being built all around us. And finally, how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how brands, large and small, are building for these audiences. Welcome to Gen C. Avery, episode 59, last episode of 2023. It's going to be a spicy one. Are you excited? And what's going on? Tell me about everything. Lucky number 59. I'm so excited um, for our guest today, for the last episode of 2023, and for everything that we've been building on Gen C. An awesome year of ups and downs and curveballs and all the fun things that have happened. But most importantly, we made it through 2023. How are you feeling? Uh, It's been a long year. I will definitely agree with that. I know we've had a bunch of stuff going on. But yeah, I'm excited. Um, We have Ivan Dashkov, who's the head of emerging technology at Puma, stopping by in a second. Uh, But first, I know there's a couple stories we wanted to talk about. And I really wanted to get our predictions for next year out. But first, I wanted to get your thoughts on a couple of days ago, our mutual good friend Mark Zuckerberg posted that he is starting to test threads on the ActivityPub protocol, which allows you to, in essence, port your social media to any decentralized social media app. I believe he said Mastodon was going to be the first one that was going to use it. I know him and Adam Asari are big like maxis when it comes to decentralized social. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on, do you think this is really a thing or does this kind of their nod to, oh, look, we're not so evil? For one, I think he posted this on Threads, if I'm not wrong. Threads, which is not the most populated of his many platforms, several of which have billions of users. So starting with Threads, I think is an interesting choice. Threads is a platform that's also been getting like some sort of mixed reviews. Some people are still in it and still posting, and there was a lot of hype, fastest growing social app ever, and then it's you know dramatically cooled off since then. But I think that they're experimenting with it. I believe that Mark said he was pretty optimistic about this. But I think he's also tempering his sort of predictions on this, maybe coming off the metaverse hype. He's sort of placing a little bit more realistic expectations in this one. But it's one that I'm following. I'm interested in. It's just early to tell if that's something that he and his team will continue to want to invest in and also something that users actually care about. Yeah, I agree. You care about it, though. We know I care about it only because I'm interested in whether any decentralized social media app will actually ever make it. And I'm sort of 50-50 on it. Like I'm not a big maxi when it comes to whether decentralized social or social fi is going to be a big thing. Yeah. So I'm cautiously interested. I have been checking it every day or two and I keep posting just to see if the algorithm has been changing. And I've actually been seeing more virality in it as I think people are leaning into it, you know, not to the level we've seen on a Twitter or on a TikTok, but I think they are tweaking it to see if they can create a little bit more fandom, if you will, around threads. So I'm interested to see where that goes. I think he even said that specifically in his 
thread, he said that he thought it would help content reach more people. So, you know, maybe there's an algorithm tweak that goes along with this, in addition to allowing people more control over their own data, their own ability to move things interoperably across social platforms, which we know is something people say they want. So now we will see if this is actually something that people do want, you know, even if it means adding an extra step or two. Well, and I will say, not giving too much away, but this has a bit of where one of my predictions is going. So we'll put a pin in this for the moment, but we will be coming back to it. The second thing I thought was really interesting was the story that was in the Washington Post, which is that they've seen a giant uptick in the amount of kind of deep faked and AI driven articles that are happening in the political sphere. I thought this was really interesting. They mentioned in Slovakia that politicians found that someone was creating deep fakes of them saying things they never said as a way to sort of get people not to endorse or go out and vote for a candidate. So it was really kind of a negative, competitive way of utilizing AI to make people think that their competitors or that these candidates were saying things that might be controversial. I think this is going to be a giant issue in 24. Again, not a prediction, but I just think, you know, we're going to see a lot of this stuff coming up. And I think about when, you know, we both know Jason from BlockWorks, when an AI came in scraped and created an entire copy of the entire site and then just put their own advertising and phishing links on it. And the fact that you can do that now utilizing these tools really scares me as someone who, who spends a lot of time in the news. What are your thoughts of like the realities of fake information, deep fakes and content that's going to be very misleading to a public that doesn't always want to do the work? I think Slovakia might be calling this out, but it's something that's happening today all over the globe already. And we know it. You just gave an example. I see examples every single day for individuals, for executives, for companies. And it wasn't that you couldn't do this previously. You could have done this two years ago, but it would have taken someone so much work to go duplicate everything for BlockWorks that it would not really be worth it by the time it's immediately taken down. I think it's more the speed to market and the ability to do these things. Deepfakes have existed for a long time too, right? But it was you had to be such a computer literate person who's like very specialized to be able to do this. Now this is something that anybody can do very quickly and without needing like special access to a lot of sophisticated tools and expensive technologies. So I think it's more something that's always happened, but it's way easier and way faster. And I think what we're going to see continue to happen, because I think this is happening now, is proliferation of disinformation or information that parts of it are true and parts of it are not. Of course, we know social platforms and you know even entities like Google and Meta are taking a more active stance and actually calling out false information, calling out satire even, since sometimes people don't necessarily understand if something is satirical. You and I had a funny banter on that recently. And I think it will, in an interesting way, make real life interactions and live interactions even more important because you'll know that that is something that's like actually real and actually validated. And I think, you know, information verification continues to be a big opportunity that people should care about. And hopefully in the future, they'll care more and more about is like really seeing something live, knowing that it's true, knowing that it's authorized and from the right person, the person that is intended to be. This will probably follow a sort of parallel line to consumers becoming more aware that this is a problem because people like us are very aware of it. I don't think your average American consumer, if I walk downstairs to my local Target, they don't know that this is a thing. And I think in this coming election cycle, there will probably be a few moments that really trigger people to realize just the scale of misinformation and disinformation. This reminds me, Avery, of that article that I think was the New Yorker who put out 
that was like a very provocative headline. And then about halfway through the article, it just goes to like complete gibberish because they wanted to see if people were actually reading the articles when they were sharing. Right. And they were basically punking their audience and they found a ton of people shared this article. Of course. Without the commentary because they just, they like the headline. And I kind of feel like we all sometimes think so much of the consumer, but the consumer doesn't think that much of themselves. And I think that's one of the challenges. Like you have to be willing to do work. Work is always hard. And, you know, it's easy to see something and react to it. It's a lot harder to say, wait a second. Now I have to go verify if that's actually accurate. And, you know, it might take you 10 seconds, but 10 seconds you could be doing something else with. So I'm a little more pessimistic, unfortunately, that even things like validation, would people do the next step? is I guess where my mind goes. And I hope they do, but well, I'm not. I'm saying by the validation, I think we're going to have to do it for them. We'll have to be like, this is true. And like, this is authorized. Like some type of like mm. a signaling stamp that's like, this is like legitimate and real. Because I agree with you, people are probably not going to go do their homework and fact check. Yes, if you're a journalist. Yes, if you're like a person who really like cares and questions these types of things, but your average person probably won't because they're busy doom scrolling TikTok as fast as they can, being over-programmed like crazy. And, you know, I've been reading a lot recently just around like the amount of like information and content and messages people are exposed to every day just continues to like grow exponentially. So it's harder to remember things and people don't need to remember things as much as they used to because, you know, you can just go reference search in your email or something like that. And, you know, we're seeing this developmentally affect like younger people as well. And already there's a ton of studies on this. So it'll be interesting to see, but my prediction would be we will see more formats of verification that happen either through media platforms, through digital platforms, or through some of these like real like IP creators themselves who might want to make it very clear what's actually them versus what's not if there's like a deep fake incident. And I think where you're going with this, which just to put words in your mouth, like that there will be an increased value in it actually being created by human. I agreed. Yes. Yeah, and the devalue of machine-driven information. Increased by human, increased by live. I think live is something that Mm. I think about a lot in the context of our business at Vayner because those in-person experiences are so valuable. And then, of course, we capture content and, you know, share that across all the platforms. But that authenticity that happens in real life, you know, in a post-pandemic world, like, really resonates. All right. Well... I think we're going to come back to this, I'm sure, a lot in 2024. So I'm excited for us to have that conversation. But in the time we have left, Avery, I want to know what you are excited about. What predictions do you have for next year? I'm going to start. I'm going to pause after each one. Give me your reactions. Please. My first prediction is, and this one relates to crypto because, you know, our roots lie in there for this podcast. But post-SBF, not only did it you know, create a large sort of stain on our industry. And we've been kind of working very slowly to get back to something that sort of people are comfortable going with. But SPF was throwing tons of money around Washington. And so you saw a softening of how regulators and politicians were looking at crypto because he was lobbying and spending, you know, I think it was almost $100 million on this. When he got arrested and FTX blew up, all that money dried up. And so you started to see the politicians, in addition to the brand conversation around FTX, start to pull away from crypto as much as possible. I've been paying attention where it's both with Brian Armstrong and Stand With Crypto that we just did an event with, as well as uh, Brad Carlinghouse at Ripple just announced a big lobbying initiative that's about $70 million. I think we're going to see that hole be closed in the lobbying initiatives that will go out to Washington, which I think then starts to translate into next year, a lot of politicians 
opening back up to the concept of crypto, and especially if these Bitcoin ETFs and ETFs get approved, I think we're going to see Washington be much more supportive than they've been in 2024, despite what like Liz Warren says. I think there's going to be a lot more friendliness because they're going to know, just frankly, there's a lot of money powering the system now. That's my first. I love that prediction. I'm into that. All right. Number two, the idea of game engine powered immersive shopping, I think is going to really start finding its place in 2024. I keep thinking about it, whether or not it is a Roblox or Fortnite partnering with a Shopify or they are replacing Shopify. The idea is not about buying digital assets. It's actually about buying physical assets, but that the environments you're buying them are going to be powered by game engines. It sort of reminds me of a little bit the live shopping that happens in Asia, which people are very comfortable making quick purchases. Yeah, like Flip is super popular here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that like new shopping paradigms, but that we have a group of people who are raised on video games more than they were raised on traditional retail or traditional media are going to want experiences to be more immersive when they go shopping. Yeah. Prediction number two. Super aligned to that one. All right. Perfect. Number three, um, I had an amazing conversation yesterday with friends Liz Hagelthorne and Kelly Nyland, who are both really on the edges of AI and custom GPT creation. And it really opened my eyes to some stuff. My prediction is one which I think probably makes sense, but I don't think people are talking about it enough, which is these LLMs keep getting wider and wider and sucking more and more information, which I believe is diluting their accuracy. And then in addition, we've seen OpenAI and a bunch of others like start to say, oh, you can't do all of these things because we don't want to deal with copyright infringement of a Dolly image that has David Bowie in it, right? So we're just not going to make it for you. So I think that we're going to see instead of bigger and wider LLMs, very specific use case LLMs that are going to really focus on what's the one thing that this LLM can do really, really well, whether that's image generation, whether that's creating tweets, that it's going to be trained on data sets that we control and we own and that we're really excluding as much as possible so it can be a really efficient model and agent for us in what we do. And then my second piece of that, again, inspired by the conversation I was having yesterday, was I think that also then starts to lead us to the idea that each of us, in essence, has a GPT that at some point we could license out, right? And the idea that, you know, instead of like Meta or Twitter holding all of our data, and they're the ones who have it, we're actually just giving them access through an API key that we can then cut off when we decide not to, and they have to hit it in order to get our information, which is maybe not as relevant for me or maybe even for you, but might be really relevant to someone like Gary, right? Or a celebrity who their feed becomes really valuable. And so the idea that, you know, I kind of look at it almost like the Netflix approach where it's like Netflix pays for content to be on its platform and that's how it gets traffic. Right now, we're actually doing the reverse. We're almost like we're paying with attention and time to build someone else's platform could there be a personal GPT that really allows you or anyone to sort of access that? And that's how creators get monetized. I agree with the first parts. Like we're in that right now. Like we've already seen sort of the multimodal generative AI tools, like actually have like less efficiency than they used to in certain cases. And we've already gone in this like route of very specific custom models, like more like a specialist versus a generalist sort of situation. So I agree with part one. Part two, everyone is looking at how they're going to make a buck from all of these tools. And I'm not sure that's going to happen next year. Everybody's like toying around and playing around with it. I think there is a lot of value, but for a lot of these IP owners, brands, celebrities, like it's very hard to train it to the place where you can like really trust it because, you know, it needs such vast amounts of data. And also it's very hard to 
you know, there's certain things that are sensitive that people would want out of it. And I don't think we're going to be there in a year. We're trying to figure this out right now. And I think it's a bigger challenge than people realize. You're right. I should have caveated that. I think we're going to see the beginnings of that start to take form. The beginnings. Okay. I agree. I think it's probably more of a three to five year, but I could see down the road where really we're giving people license to our data, which could be an advertiser who wants to advertise to us, or it could be someone who wants to utilize our visual style on Instagram like photos. Yeah, but your visual style, like in what year and like what genre? What about if you did a doodle that was inappropriate ones? Agreed. I think that's a little bit of like what we're figuring out right now. So I'll give three of my predictions. And you know, I remain absurdly bullish on crypto in the long term. And I think that we're actually going to see crypto have like a breakthrough consumer use case in a country outside of the US. Um, I Mm. think with just a regulatory environment in the US right now, I don't see that in the immediate cards here. But I think maybe it's a smaller country. It's an emerging market. It's like, oh, wow, they actually found a way to make this like useful and maybe an an authorized form of currency. You know, there was a little bit of that going on in Latin America in the last few years, and that that hasn't shaken out very well. But I think that we are going to see like a real non-sketchy use case for crypto in a smaller emerging market. That's prediction one. I love it. Fantastic. The second thing, and I know I just talked about this, is I think that events and experiences are going to actually be more and more valuable because everyone is so saturated with like digital everything. I think that's why we're going to see tickets to games get more expensive and sponsorships get more valuable because one, being there in person, but also the authenticity of what you can capture on social. Like at Vayner, we've talked a lot about like events as a content engine and generator. So what do you think about that one, Sam? I mean, I love that. And I come out of the experiential world, so I support it. My question actually back to you, though, is, I mean, events are expensive. It's the one problem with it is like, if you're going to show up at South by NCES and Art Basel and the Oscars and this and that, and you're spending hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars every time, you have to be a big brand to play that game. Smaller brands might have more challenge. So my question for you is actually more something we've also talked about is, do you start to see more eventing happening in immersive worlds? I think it's just as expensive to event in an immersive world um, <laughs> is the reality. Well, maybe you build once and then, yeah. you know. Then and scale it. Um, I think that we will see that. And I think that we'll also see a lot of like, great, meet me at this place at this time, meet me at these coordinates for this concert, for this digital meetup. Digital meetups, I could see like getting more and more popular and having brands like intentionally drive people to places at certain times. So I could get behind that. And I also think brands like you don't always have to be a big brand and do something big and expensive. It could be doing like differentiated events at smaller places that are outside of like the conference circuit. That's a little preview of what our VaynerX event strategy is going to be next year. I love it. I'm a big supporter. Less conferences and more sort of ownable, but cool experiences that you're not expecting. Amazing. And then I my third prediction is I think this 2024 will be the year where like AI actually starts to like materially change the world of marketing. I think we'll see from a production standpoint first, like actual changes get made in terms of, you know, the basic things like asset resizing and localization. We've been getting our hands in it the last year and a half. And I've been actually really surprised with how quickly large Fortune 100 advertisers are able to like accept and adopt in this world. And I think this will be a year where like AI really does start to dramatically change the way that we go to market with communication messages and ads and campaigns and all of that fun stuff. So I'm excited for that. And I think it'll be a new world and new frontier for all of us to explore. I think that's great. And I totally agree. And I think it's like spot on. You talk about it and we all talk about it. I think for like the productivity hack is the first one. Yeah. I keep thinking about things like programmatic and that programmatic advertising, the, all the people who are the 
gurus of programmatic are going to be out of jobs in a couple of years. Well, Sam, you know my thoughts on programmatic. I worked at DoubleClick and I think there's so many middlemen between the publisher and the advertiser, let alone the consumer, that I think that that industry is ripe for transparency and disruption. And I think that AI might expose some of that, which many people, including a lot of very seasoned media professionals, just either turn a blind eye to or don't see. No, agreed. And that's what I'm wondering if like productivity first, because I totally get it, the resizing, the changing language. But that could be like eight figures per year for like a lot of brands. Oh, for sure. It's a lot of money. Yeah, but that's where I look at then. In the same way that I look at like, I think stock trading is going to go through an unbelievable change in the next couple of years because everyone's going to have a really intelligent agent based on parameters you want to set. That I think the programmatic and that whole idea of media buys, I think is going to drastically change with AI. I think so. I think it already has. Like, even if you look at the interfaces for a Google ads or a meta, like they're really doing a lot of that optimization themselves and like instructing, you know, media buyers, like, okay, great. Like it will be more effective if you do RP max, that's Google's product for this, instead of trying to like select your placements and whatnot. So that already has been happening and AI will probably continue to accelerate that. I think on the production side, though, there's quite a bit of disruption that could happen there um, that will ultimately, hopefully, allow all those production folks an opportunity to do things that are more creative, more fun, and allow clients to have their dollars work like harder, you know, to things that ultimately like drive because everyone needs the right sizes of ads. That is a real need. But I don't know if you need a real human to do that resizing. Right. Avery, let's get to our guest, Ivan from Puma. But first, thank you so much. This has been an incredible prediction show. I think we've not done one since our first one was like number four. Yeah, it's been too long. <laughs> but I'm uh, really excited to see and hold ourselves accountable to this next year. We'll take a look at it. So with that said, let's get to Ivan. Chainalysis is the premier blockchain data platform. Crypto businesses, financial institutions, and government agencies utilize Chainalysis data and services to answer their biggest questions about the blockchain. As regulators and policymakers work together to pass legislation that provides clarity for crypto businesses and protects consumers, they have the chance to do so with unparalleled data and research into the crypto ecosystem. Demystify cryptocurrency and gain greater visibility and insight by visiting Chainalysis.com slash Gen C. We are so excited to have you here today with us, Ivan. I know this has been a long time coming. We've been chatting about doing this podcast, I don't know, at least for many months, maybe even a year. So today is the day, last Gen C of the year, and couldn't think of a better guest to bring it home. So Ivan, can you tell the Gen C community a little bit about yourself and your career and sort of what brought you here today? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me. You know, it's an honor to be on this podcast. I've listened to a lot of these episodes and they're always fantastic. I get a lot out of them. So it's fun to be on the other side of it. So really appreciate that, uh, Avery and Sam. And, and Avery, it's like, I'm like excited to like actually have like a, like a sit down conversation with you too. Cause I feel like I've seen you at so many events, but I feel like we haven't like really had a, a time to like talk in depth. So I'm excited to kind of do that today too. This is our bonding during Gen C, which I love. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm the third wheel, I guess, in this relationship now. So. <laughs> Or like a fun tricycle here. So let's uh, let's kind of jump into it then. Uh, so yeah, a little bit about me. Uh, first, I really have to kind of shout out my parents. They moved to America when I was a little kid. When I was three years old from the Soviet Union. I literally moved here with a couple of suitcases, a couple hundred bucks. We actually got moved here so my dad could get some additional education. And then, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed and we got to stay here. But really got to shout out my parents for everything about like building a life out here and building opportunities for my sister and I out here, I think. 
you know, who I am today, who my sister is today is because of what my parents have done for us. So I really got to, you know, shout them out when people ask uh, who I am, because who I am is really based off, you know, who they were, what they've done for me. Uh, in terms of my career, you know, before I kind of go into my background, there's really two kind of repeating themes in my background. First is that I love to build processes and teams. You know, it's kind of funny when I play, like, I don't play them as much anymore, but when I was younger. I used to play Madden and NBA 2K kind of growing up. But that was the first time I would kind of play GM mode and I would never actually play games. I would just kind of build out the roster, make trades, do the draft picks. So I always kind of like loved like that idea, like kind of like building out teams and processes. And now I kind of get to do it in all the jobs I kind of work on, especially because all like everything I kind of do is in this like new emerging marketing space and has been. So, you know, everything that I kind of touch is, is a new kind of medium that we need to navigate. So being able to build out the processes for them is pretty fun. And then the second theme throughout my career is that I love playing with new mediums and technologies and finding ways to utilize new platforms and tech to kind of reach consumers and fans. You know, I did that at the NBA during my early days there in the early days of social. And I do that now at Puma at Emerging Marketing Tech. And to dive a little bit deeper into it. So my career restarted at the NBA in 2012. I joined the NBA in the really early days of social. My first job was kind of a dream job. was literally sitting in a room with 15 TVs on. Each TV had a different basketball game. And I would literally post from the NBA Twitter account and the NBA Facebook account live updates of each of those games. Again, really like a dream job for a young 20-year-old. Was there an approval process or it was just you firing off tweets? Well, no, you, you had like 10 games going at a time and you know <laughs> right. all these games have like constant things going on. So you can't like approve every single tweet. It's just not realistic. Love the trust right there. The reason I double click into that is I think so many brands would be like, oh my God, but that's the nature of live sports. You have to. Yeah, you have to. There's really no way around it. And social was like still so new back then. It was all text-based, which is crazy thinking about it now because it's so video dominant now and photo dominant. So I really got to kind of watch like the evolution of, of social throughout my career. And I kind of helped push that evolution too. I pushed the, the NBA to join new platforms like Snapchat, Reddit, and Musical.ly. Snapchat's actually a pretty fun one because uh, what I pushed us to be on Snapchat is like talking to like these like 50-year-old executives. And I'm like, we should be on Snapchat. And they're like, isn't this like a sexting platform? Like, what are you talking about? And it's just like, it's kind of funny to kind of think about like the early days then. Um, but eventually we got onto it. I think we were really the first major brand to be on the platform when I left. We were the only brand with over a million followers on it. So that was really fun to see. But when I was at the NBA, I kind of had three main pillars of responsibility. One was that like business development, finding new opportunities like Snapchat. The second kind of opportunity or place that I kind of focused on was building out our social creative team. So Basically, when I first started, like I said, it was all very text-based. But I was saw these like freelance graphic designers back in the day creating these really cool, almost like posters of players. So it'd be like LeBron James jumping up, he's on fire as he's dunking. There's these really cool graphics they're producing on their free time. I was like, why don't we do that? Like, why don't we make these like cool graphics and use them to promote tune in or make a really cool birthday graphic for a player to get some easy engagement or make a really cool stats graphic and sell it to one of our partners as a promotional post. So we started building that out in the beginning. It was like, we did like one a week. And by my last year there, we did over 1500 pieces of artwork. We were producing things for nbastore.com, like actual merchandise. We were doing things on broadcast for NBA TV. We actually hired like CGI designers. They were making these really cool like Marvel, like motion graphics that we had uh, for like really cool highlight plays. Uh, so that was like a really fun part of the job. And the last part of the job was actually traveling to events. So. You know, when LeBron and the Cavs won the championship, I was in the locker room with them capturing content. 
I was at like four or five all-star games in the locker room capturing content on the court capturing content. Uh, so really kind of acting as a like social media producer, you know, asking players questions, being on the court with them during warm-ups, being in the locker room with them before and after the game. Yeah, so yeah, definitely a little bit of a dream job working at the NBA for those five years. But at some point, you can only ask uh, an NBA player to take a selfie so many times before you kind of want to do something else. So I moved on, joined Puma about five years ago. It's been great. I initially joined Puma as the head of social there, uh, built out the social team. We had some great successes when I was the head of social in 2019, 2020. We were actually the most engaged sportswear brand per 1,000 followers, beating out Nike, Adidas, Reebok, and a couple other brands too. So that was really great to see. We were the first sportswear brand on TikTok as well. And I think we actually had more 1 million viewed videos when I left than all our competitors that combined on TikTok, which is fun. So again, like I like finding like new mediums and figure out how like to utilize them to reach our consumers and our fans. And that's kind of how the Web3 opportunity came along. Um, NFTs were becoming a bigger, bigger part of culture. And our chief brand officer at the time asked me to take a look at it. I really spent six months like deep diving into it, like in discourse all the time, the different metaverses, looking at different NFTs, buying NFTs, selling NFTs. And I feel like people that like saw me working at my desk in the office probably just thought I like, wasn't doing anything. I was just like goofing off because I just spent so much time in these different environments. Uh, but we built this great strategy over the course of six months. We brought in this awesome agency that's been really helping us. And we've been executing for the last couple of years. And I think we've had a lot of great successes. We've launched a couple of our own NFTs, uh, Puma Pass and Super Puma that sold out right away. We've had some great partnerships with 10KTF and GutterCat, a couple other partners too. So that's been a great success for us. But then we've also, the way we see Web3 is pretty broad. So things like Roblox fall into it. So we've launched two Roblox experiences. Our second Roblox experience was actually the highest rated brand experience on the platform at the time of launch. So that was great to see it too. And then we did other things like with one of our fashion designers, we actually appeared in Metaverse Fashion Week in 2021. So still kind of pretty early for Metaverse Fashion Week. We also had a big New York City Fashion Week show that we integrated with a lot of like Web3 elements into it things like digital humans, where we have like these 3D versions of our ambassadors. We actually linked our NFT sale to that Fashion Week show as well. And we built our own kind of metaverse environment that it kind of was a co-companion experience for the actual physical show itself. So I feel like I just like talked forever, but I guess not a very quick uh, background on me, but a background on me. A very thorough background on you, which we love to. Yeah. And you're shouting out your parents, which we don't do like enough. So thank you for doing that as well. <laughs> Let's look at Puma specifically, I was interested, you know, we've had a lot of folks that focus on innovation, emerging tech, emerging marketing solutions on the show. And I think it's always a great conversation. I'm always like trying to understand what the thesis for the brand is. And I say that in the sense of how much of it is a mix of like getting new communities involved, how much of it is just like the PR and buzz that comes from trying something new, how much of it is actually like future proofing the brand against what could be the next big shift. So like, how do you guys think of your approach to innovation in marketing? Yeah, I think the biggest goal is future-proofing. Our, our old chief brand officer just left, but he was at the brand for 25 years. And he was there for like the early days of e-com and the early days of social. And he tells a story really great about how we kind of missed the boat on e-com. And now we're still playing catch-up where we're still trying to upgrade the Puma.com experience. Uh, I guess the same thing kind of happened with social where we kind of missed the social boat initially. And then we did a really good job of rebounding and rebuilding that. So when we kind of saw these new like emerging marketing technologies coming out, we didn't want to miss the boat there. So our whole strategy has been testing and learning, trying to do as much as we can in the space and getting as much feedback and continuing to kind of build out our strategy based off the feedback and tests that we do. You know, the way we see a lot of these technologies being used initially probably isn't the way they'll be used in three to five years. 
But we need like a deep understanding and learning of these technologies to be ready to pivot with them as they pivot. So I think like NFT is the way that they've been used the last two years or so, probably isn't how they're going to be used in even next year or a couple of years down the line. I think there's some interesting use cases that we have for them that aren't even consumer facing. So I think it's just like understanding these technologies, like learning with them and growing with them as they upgrade too. I love that. And I think that's something that we're all figuring out the right way to do. And and sort of zooming out from that a little bit, Ivan, I'd love to hear your take, you know, being at Puma on the role of digital fashion and, you know, from your perspective, how big a role digital fashion is going to be playing with the next generation of consumers. You mentioned some of the stuff you all have done in Roblox and Metaverse Fashion Week. How are you all thinking about digital fashion as an innovation strategy, but even a business strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think digital fashion is already a pretty massive business. I think the last number that I saw is that, you know, digital skins and and digital items do over $50 billion a year. So it's really like a huge business. So for me, it's just people are going to continue showcasing themselves in these different digital environments. If it's Warzone or Fortnite or Rocket League or Meta's Avatar Store, what have you. You know, people are spending more and more time in these digital environments. There's more opportunities to express yourself in these digital environments. So I think you're just going to continue kind of seeing people invest in this and really try and express themselves. And for us, like we kind of talk about it in like the real world of Puma a lot. It's like, you know, the greatest thing is when somebody buys like a Puma hoodie or Puma t-shirt with a big Puma logo on it, they go out and wear it because that means they're proud to support the brand. I think it's the same thing in these digital environments. Like if you're wearing like a Puma t-shirt or hoodie in these digital environments, like that means you really love and are proud to kind of showcase the brand. So I think kind of giving opportunities for the consumer to do that is really important. And also like, you know, having the right mix of free opportunities versus paid opportunities too, because I think right now, like it's more valuable from like the marketing component of it, like to get the exposure of people actually wearing these items versus like the actual dollars you can make if you get these behind a small fee. But I also think it's important to kind of start building out those revenue streams and thinking about what that could kind of look in the long term too. We sort of heard in 21 and to some degree 22, this idea that real world assets should have digital twins. And maybe that's where kind of the specialness comes in. You know, you might sell 100,000 pairs of a certain sneaker, but only five of them let you fly in Fortnite. Is that sort of still correct thinking of how this thing evolves? Or is it really about digital first or even digital pushing back to real world commerce? Like, what's your take on where this goes? I think it's a mix, to be honest with you. One thing that I love kind of talking about internally is that at Puma, we're so concentrated on shoes and apparel, but I'm like, in these digital worlds, like we can sell anything, right? We can sell cars, we can sell airplanes, we can be anything we want to be. We don't necessarily need to be just tied to shoes and apparel. Like We just need to kind of showcase our brand and these different elements that are interesting to the consumer. Because luckily we are like a brand that people you know love and recognize and we're not just like a white label product. So I think that's a big opportunity and like a new way of thinking. It's like what kind of other types of products can we do in these spaces? So I think that's part of it. I, I do think there's like an interesting world where like if you do buy a certain type of Puma shoe, like you get that digital twin attached to it. And maybe like when you create a Puma.com account, like you actually get like a wallet that's tied to it. Maybe most consumers don't know it's there, but you know, there's wallets like collecting these digital items attached to the physical ones that you buy. There's a lot you could do from like a loyalty perspective there as well. But then also being like having that tie into different games and metaverses that people can support these items. I think I think it's an interesting space. You know, it's something that we've talked a lot about internally at Puma about the right way of essentially going about it. I still think there's a couple like roadblocks and things that kind of get in the way of it. But I think eventually that's where we kind of see a lot of the space going is like people getting both the digital and physical item. And I think the other thing too is like in the digital world, like we're also like not bound by physics either, right? So there's like a lot of interesting things that we can kind of do with our apparel and our footwear that we can't do in the physical world too. 
Absolutely. The shoes can look like anything. There's no laws of gravity. And as you mentioned, you know, Puma could be doing all different types of virtual items. I I do want to sort of double tap on what you mentioned around roadblocks internally to think about doing something like a loyalty strategy, because I think 2023 was a year where a lot of brands and plenty of our clients considered doing like a Web3 loyalty strategy. Some of them actually implemented it and many decided against it for various reasons. I'd love to sort of understand how you all are thinking about that. Are you thinking about that as you mentioned tying it to some type of a digital identifier that already exists, like an email account or you know, a dot Puma account or something like that. And also, you know, what are those internal challenges that you're dealing with as the sort of head of this emerging technology group? Yeah, I think one thing that we kind of face as a challenge, and I guess it's also an opportunity, is that we're actually kind of rebuilding our loyalty program. So Puma, no pun intended, is a very decentralized organization. So a lot of our regions have like a lot of power and they kind of, you know, each e-com is a little bit different in each region because each region kind of powers their own e-com. Shipping experience is different, availability, assortment, those things like that, like vary a little bit market to market. Exactly. And just really the whole e-com experience is just a little bit different. Every region, I think, had their own loyalty program or like pockets of regions were together and other pockets were, but there wasn't like a global centralized program. But I think right now we're working towards like a more global centralized loyalty program. The challenge is that there's just a lot of stakeholders that are involved. So it's like working together to kind of figure out like the best program for everybody. But the opportunity too is like, we're building like a new program right now. So there's a lot of freedom in the way that we can kind of design it. Uh, so we're definitely a part of those conversations and we're still like very early in the whole program itself. But, you know, there are conversations that we're having as we kind of look forward to the future. And then going back to the gaming side, you know, Avery and I have had a lot of great guests in the recent months who have talked about gaming, everyone from Niantic to Roblox. And I keep getting interested in all the experiences that happen that are not straight gameplay. Because I do think a lot of people who are building in a Roblox or a Fortnite are still making games. And I think that's like the lowest hanging fruit is run around, collect them, some things, get a brand experience around it. I think sport is something that lends itself really well to there, but sport is also fashion. It's also culture. It's also music. When I think of Adidas or Puma or, or any of these brands, like there's a history around there of like showing up as a badge value. And so do you have any thoughts on like where game engine powered experiences are going that like might be either gamified or more just culturally, like cultural immersion and experiential? Yeah, obviously we're seeing it a lot with concerts already and music already where uh, there's all these like Fortnite concerts and Roblox concerts that are already happening. So I think you'll kind of continue seeing it in that space too. The one thing I talk about a lot internally is like, this is going to sound like a commercial, but it's not. <laughs> so if you're in New York City and you go to the Puma 5th Avenue flagship store, it's an absolutely incredible experience. That's our biggest store in the world. There's this really cool like Puma Arcade there. There's an F1 racing simulator there. It's the most advanced F1 racing simulator a consumer could use. Uh, it's all free. This is also a cool like, customization zone. So if you buy a product, you customize a product. It's a really fun experience. So you know, if you ever get the chance, check it out. The issue is though, like not all our stores are like that, right? And then like if you go to the Puma.com experience, it's great. But again, like you're kind of just kind of going through product and seeing product. What I like about building things in Roblox or building our own little metaverse that we call Blackstation, Blackstation.puma.com, is that you get to like interact with the brand and experience the brand in like a more fun, engaging way versus just like scrolling through product or like looking through product in the store. I also kind of compare it to like having like a sneaker party. If we do like a sneaker release party in Paris, like we're limited to how many people can show up based on how big the venue is and who's in Paris. But again, like we're building these things in these digital spaces that are fun and engaging. Anybody can kind of go and participate them as long as they have an internet connection. 
I love that. I also love those F1 simulators. They're really fun. We've gotten to do some stuff with some F1 teams and sponsorships. So I encourage all Gen Z listeners to go check out an F1 simulator. It is way more athletic and like, you know, physically challenging than I personally anticipated or experienced. That thing throws you around. Like if you're not ready for it, you're going to get a little bruised up. I remember watching an interview with Lewis Hamilton who said that I think he loses like three pounds every race. Like the exertion alone is that big. Yeah, it's so hot and you face so many G-forces. Yeah, it's for like how long those races are too. That's gotta be so, so extraneous. I know, so I can barely handle the simulator. But, you know, Ivan, I wanted to sort of tap back to, you know, your original roots in social. You mentioned that you've done a lot of work in your career in sort of social brand building, social community management, real-time content creation, and get your thoughts on Discord. We know that you all have an active Discord, and I know it's been a hot topic right now, sort of the evolution of Discord communities. How are you all thinking about that? Is that still a place that you see a lot of meaningful engagement, or you know, do you think it's one of those social platforms that might go the way of, you also mentioned Musical.ly, which we know uh, was the precursor to TikTok, but it has evolved. Yeah, for me, I think Discord is, is an interesting opportunity for brands. I think a lot of brands could utilize it in a way that could be really beneficial for them. I think the way that we're using it is still kind of scratching the surface of what Discord could be. You know, it really started off, the Puma Discord really started off as a place like as like our Web3 clubhouse. But we're seeing more and more people kind of jumping into it that are just Puma fans that aren't interested in the Web3 part of it. They're kind of coming in to talk about different sports we're involved in or they're coming in to ask about shoes. So I think people are kind of seeing it as like a place they can go and talk about Puma. I think like the potential there is for it to become like a, again, like a clubhouse for all of Puma, not just Web3, where people can kind of go in and talk about the latest LaMelo Ball sneaker release or talk about the latest F1 race or what have you. So I think brands could like really utilize it again as like a place where people are having a lot of conversation about the brand and feel like welcomed by this whole community around a brand. Do you think that um, there are any other environments that are exciting you that also sort of feed that community need? It seems like there's a lot of like decentralized social platforms that are starting to pop. There's like a bunch of different, you know, alternative places like Telegram and like Signal where people are starting to do like interesting broadcast channels or engagement channels. Like are there areas that you're interested in that are really about community involvement? That's interesting. Um, so I guess one that I kind of want to talk about a little bit is Reddit. I think that one's still a little bit underutilized by brands. I think first from like an ads perspective, I think there's a lot of interesting targeting that you can do there because there's so many different subreddits that you can kind of go into that are very niche. So if you have a product offering that's very niche, you can target these different communities. You know, for my MBA days, we reached out to the MBA subreddit. We built a really good relationship with them. We provided them with a lot of great content, a lot of AMAs with players and things like that. And even as a brand, we would jump into game threads and, and comment from the MBA account. And I think people like really appreciated that. And they kind of liked like having us in that community. I think people are still surprised to see brands in Reddit. I think there's still like a little bit of like pushback from the community at times. It's like the brand is a content creator, though. It's like you're not a brand. Like you're almost like a community member in that context. Exactly. I, you know, one brand that I, I've seen recently that does a, a really good job that's really surprising to me is Fidelity. I bank with them and do a lot of my investments with them. And they have like a whole subreddit. They're super active. If somebody asks a question, they'll give like a five paragraph answer to it. That's like very detailed. So it's like not one that I would expect them to be in, but they've done a fantastic job for everything I've seen. At Coindesk, we leverage Reddit all the time because a lot of folks who are in the kind of crypto space, but either to learn or to invest, utilize it still. And and it's been tremendous for us. I agree with you. It's completely like underutilized by a lot of mainstream brands because they think that it's something it's not. And it has those areas. But as long as you kind of like put your guardrails up, I think it's a great platform for everybody. Ivan, I have a question on, because you mentioned Web3 a couple of times. You also mentioned Web3 in relation to like your Roblox experiences. So, you know, 
I think since we started this podcast a year plus ago, I think both Avery and I, and I, I always give the hat tip to Avery, has really widened up my purview of like what should be in the Web3 next level of engagement opportunities. Ivan agrees with me. He mentioned <laughs> he considers Roblox in that. No, exactly. And so I'm just wondering like, you know, how you're looking at Web3 really as just like this new engagement layer that includes Gen AI and Web3 and sort of co-collaboration with brands and consumers. Like what is your definition of Web3 that you bring back to your team? Yeah, the way we kind of define it is like any emerging marketing technology that a consumer can use to interact with the brand. So anywhere we can kind of like build experiences, offer digital products. You know, for me, like despite my social background speaking, but like I always want to find ways where people can really generally interact with us. That's why I kind of love the Discord because it's like it's a lot of uh, very like small menu, like one to one interaction. But then I look at AI, I think there's obviously a lot of different ways that a brand like Puma can use AI from designing footwear, designing colorways, designing creative. Like I think those are all pretty obvious at this point. But then I kind of think about it, it's like, how can we give AI to the hands of our consumer to help like co-design with us in interesting ways? And there's a couple of different projects that we're working on currently in that space that I can't talk about too much, but I think it's like such an interesting opportunity because there's something that we always kind of talk about is that like, we as a brand don't really own our brand. Like really the consumer does. Like, which products they buy, you know, where they wear these products, you know, when they're showing off the Puma brand versus when they're not showing off the Puma brand is really what the Puma brand is, right? So for us, like, it's like, how do we like continue giving the consumer the keys to Puma and letting them kind of like have as much control as possible? I love that you just said that because I was just in another session with some fashion partners. and They were talking about sort of balancing the reality that the way that consumers experience Puma is Puma. And that's also how they're going to share Puma. And then balancing that with the creative director's like expectations of how the Instagram feed should look or should be or how their products should be worn. And I think it's, you know, an interesting balance to strike of like, you know, that editorial and creative vision and sort of showing people something that they didn't even know they wanted with also accepting and embracing the fact that consumers do want to co-create with the brands they love. I'll give a shout out to H&M. They have this like really cool tool that allows consumers to sort of co-create. We should link that in the show notes as well because I think that's something we'll be seeing a lot more of from brands enabling and encouraging that level of co-creation and actually bringing that to life with physical products. Yeah, I also think like we all kind of think about these like digital environments, but I think that'd be like a great thing for to do like in store or at like a different events is like having these different like co-creation like pop-ups where people can kind of go in. We've actually done a couple with Market, which is like a hype beast brand out of LA. We love those guys. They'll like come in and they'll kind of create this like customization zone where we'll have like a ton of different Puma patches, different market patches. Maybe we'll have like a third party partner in there that have patches for them too. And people can kind of customize their own hoodies or t-shirts or what have you. And people absolutely love those. They like literally wait for like hours to kind of get the chance to do it. And I think like being able to kind of do that, utilizing AI and utilizing some of these other technologies, you can kind of make these uh, a little bit more fun, a little bit more engaging. Ivan, last question. You clearly like whether it's Twitter or it sounds like TikTok, like you were able to spot some really interesting open lanes early with a lot of these technologies. This is the last show of the year. As you look into 2024, is there anything that's like exciting you that you're willing to talk about and not give too much alpha away to your competitors? What's sort of getting you like interested of places to focus for the next year, two years, three years? Yeah, one thing that I feel like isn't talked about a lot. And I think it's a very interesting technology. It might be one that like in 10 or 15 years is ubiquitous and we all have it or it might go away is 
3D printing. I think there's just so many like interesting things. I feel like it's just not talked about enough. That's a wild card. Yeah, yeah I was not expecting this. <laughs> very much a wild card. I think Zellerfield has done some really interesting things in the space. Uh, Deep Objects uh, is another one. But obviously, it's still kind of very nascent. Puma's used 3D printers for a long time, for probably a decade now. We have them on like in our office, and we do some like early prototypes with them. Uh, so it's not like the technology is like super new or anything like that. But I still feel like it's not like at a place where like a consumer can kind of use it in an easy fashion. So I mean, I think there's like potentially like a world in the future, you know, ten or fifteen years down the line, where people are 3D printing shoes in their house through a, a multi-material 3D printer. And like, what does that mean for Puma as a brand if that's happening? So I think that's like a question that we need to kind of, you know, explore a little bit and test and, and kind of figure out like a stance on it. Obviously, there's a chance 10 or 15 years that, you know, that doesn't happen either. Uh, but I just feel like it's like a technology that isn't talked enough from like a consumer facing perspective. And again, as a brand, like we have 3D printers. We actually did our first 3D printed shoe recently with Porsche that we released a couple months ago. So we've done a couple of things, but I think there's more that we can kind of do, especially thinking about it from like a co-creation space too. Amazing. Ivan, thank you so much for taking the time during Christmas week to join us um, to share your insights and to preview the potential future of 3D printing, which was an amazing way to end the show. I thought you were going to say something of like virtual reality, et cetera. So I love that you gave us a curveball there, but it's been so nice to hear a little bit about how you have built your career, a little bit about how you're sort of guiding the Puma brand and community into this next world of emerging media and hope you have the best holiday and can't wait to get to hang out again in 2024. Awesome. Appreciate you guys having me. Thanks for uh, having the best uh, Web3 podcast out there. So yes, keep crushing it. Thank you. Testimonials. <laughs> have, a, have a great holiday. Give our best to your parents as well. Take care. We'll do. Ivan was such a fun guest. I know we've been trying to get this on the books forever, and I'm glad that we finally nailed it down. Really awesome to hear his experience being that sort of social producer, taking the selfies with the NBA stars, to now what he's done with Puma sort of NFT strategy, Web3 strategy. Sounds like they're doing some interesting thinking around the world of AI. And yeah, it's awesome to sort of hear his well-rounded perspective on how all of these things can contribute to the next generation of Puma. Absolutely. I also think about, you know, one of our first episodes was with Erica from Adidas. You know, now having Ivan from Puma, just manifesting Nike for next year, by the way. So we're going to try to keep working on getting them to come on. But I do think that like those are the areas that have such a wide fan base. There is a lot of creativity that goes into both the marketing as well as the product design itself. I love that like they are always looking at what's the next opportunity for us to connect deeper with consumers. I was really excited to hear kind of all of his thoughts. The 3D printing comment, by the way, was the one I'm like, that technology really has to advance before we're going to jump in there. I do not have a 3D printer myself, but um, the last time I played with my brother-in-laws, I was kind of like, is, uh, is this it? But like he was talking about multi-material, it might be happening. Yeah, I remember going to the Adidas factory in Oregon and they have a 3D printer that they do for prototyping, which was really cool. But again, they're not like ready to wear. So I'm, I'm excited to see what one could do. Was it like very large? Oh, it's giant. It's like half of your bedroom, basically. Okay, cool. Yeah, but not what's going to get shoes on your feet the next day for the average consumer, but we'll keep it going. All right, Avery, let's close out 2023. You have been an amazing friend and co-host and co-collaborator and co-conspirator and all of this stuff. Co-creator. And co-creator, of course. And I'm really excited for you to um, bring all of the energy and amazing intelligence you do to 2024 with me. 
I will see you in 2024, Sam. And Gen Z, thank you for being with us every step of the way. We love hearing from y'all. We always want to know what you want to hear more of, less of. Um, Hit us up, DM us. And hope you all have a wonderful break. And we'll catch y'all in 2024 as well. See you later, Gen Z.